The upcoming presentation is a two-man power trip of wrestling podcast production. John Paz, and with me as always is the star of the show, former WWE Tag Team Champion, eight-time Smoky Mountain Wrestling Tag Team Champion, as well as one of the greatest trainers in the history of professional wrestling. He is the Doctor of Desire, Tom Pritchard. Tom, how are you today? John, I'm doing great today, and uh, it's always a great day here in Knoxville, Tennessee, and I can't wait to... uh meet today as as I always do here in Knoxville. It's it's the Smoky Mountains and I can't get over it, man. I'm still living in the most uh uh beautiful part in the USA in my opinion right now. So that's how I'm doing. I'm doing fantastic. You know what's interesting about Smoky Mountain and that area? Some of those guys that went there and wrestled there, they either come back or they never leave. You come back, Cornette never left that area Glenn Kane Jacobs never left that area. There's something about that area that you just kind of fall in love with it. Yeah, I think it's uh, not only the area, uh, but it's the people in the area, which um, a lot of people are are very nice, and they say grace, and they say, ma'am, if you ain't into that, they don't give a damn. It's like junior foot for you, by the way. Uh, And it's just a cool place to live. You have the mountains, you have a lot of Really nice stuff to do here if you're into hiking, even if you're not, man. we got Dollywood, just a just a beautiful place to be. The University of Tennessee is here, and uh, a lot of things to see, a lot of things to do. I love it, man. And you are fresh <clears throat> off of a big-time training seminar down in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, which is actually Ric Flair country. Um, and I know you know that, that area quite well, but the, that's pretty cool. You had a, a big-time seminar, and obviously it's one of those things that you're going to continue to be doing going forward, aside from just JPWA. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's very very cool when uh, people want to call and, and see if we're available to do a seminar. And uh, I am doing another seminar in 2021 in Altoona, Pennsylvania, and one in Nitro, West Virginia. So, um I'll have more information about that as we go along, but uh, actually the Nitro West Virginia camp is on January 16th in Altoona, uh, Pennsylvania will be in uh, on January 10th, uh, it's a Sunday, so a lot of things are happening, I have some uh, something else scheduled even farther down the road, but it's exciting, we have our January class starting up as well. And uh, looking forward to it, man. It really, it's, it's, it couldn't be any worse than 2020, but 2021's got to be a turnaround year for everybody, I hope. God, I hope so. 2020 was awful. Uh, every, every shape and whatever, however you want to word it or say, 2020 was probably the worst year of all time. Yeah, I would go ahead and say that. We can go ahead and put that as the worst year of all time. Kind of yeah. like they say it's the greatest card of all time, the greatest show of all time. We'll say, 2020 has been the worst year of all time for anybody, I would say. State that you could say is maybe the greatest state of all time, and I know you think this. Texas, I know we're talking a lot about Tennessee and and the area around the Smoky Mountains, but Texas, your home away from home, the the birthplace of Dr. Tom, the place you love the most. I figure why don't we run through a couple territories today and take you 
maybe back down uh, memory lane as we go through the beautiful state of Texas? Well, you know, I think everybody remembers uh, their initial exposure to professional wrestling. At least I do, that's for sure. I, I, I remember uh, I was born in El Paso, Texas, and grew up there. And uh, Until I was 10 years old, we moved to Houston. But <clears throat> West Texas is kind of a, a desert and hot place. Uh, it, it has its own character. It has its own flavor. I mean, authentic Mexican food. It's it, it's a it's a it's a rugged frontier town, if you will. At least it was back in nineteen in the nineteen sixties. And I remember <clears throat> uh, the first time I ever saw wrestling was a Saturday afternoon, and my my older brothers had it on uh, TV. <laughs> And we had we, it was a black and white TV, which makes which makes it even more pronounced uh, at that time. And these guys were hitting hitting the ropes, doing a crisscross, and uh, sat down and watched it. And oh God, I remember seeing Dory Funk Jr., Dory Funk Sr., and uh, the, the Hangman, the, the Von Brauners, the Infernos. Gentleman Saul Weingroff, J.C. Dykes, all these colorful characters coming out and and cutting these promos on TV and, and saying these outrageous things. And I thought, whoa, what is this? And uh, my brothers were sitting there laughing and, and, and having a good time. And uh, I'm trying to watch it. I'm trying to see what's going on. And <clears throat> they're telling me, you know, this is all fake, right? And I, I couldn't believe it because I'm watching this stuff. And to me... I guess I was, I was five, six years old, and I just remember this. This was incredible, and um, I I never stopped watching it from uh, from that day. Every every Saturday afternoon, we used to watch uh, roller derby, and then wrestling came on right after it. And <clears throat> excuse me, I remember other people telling us too that roller derby was work <laughs> as well. This is, roller derby is the same as wrestling, you know. I thought, wow, how could that be? I was learning about the world. The world wasn't what I thought it was back then. And uh, But i got to tell you, West Texas wrestling, when I grew up on it, it had uh, an authenticity and flavor of its own. And it's something I never forgot because the guys who came through there, Harley Race, Buddy Colt, uh, Ricky Romero, Gory Guerrero, El Santo, the, these are legends during that time, but they're legends who live on in the history books and the history of professional wrestling because they were the pioneers. Uh, the National Wrestling Alliance was formed in 1948 or 49, and this is just 10 years later, um, and, and El Paso was under the NWA. And I, I remember hearing about the world champion Gene Kaninsky uh, coming to town or or talking about what Gene Kaninsky had done and, and always kept the, the name of the world champion alive on TV. And uh, in February 1969, Dory Funk Jr., one of our heroes, one of our local guys, beat Gene Kaninsky in Tampa, Florida. And I thought, oh, my gosh, that's that's pretty cool. I've been watching this guy, so I have kind of a kinship with this guy. I, I know this guy. I know the Funks. And uh, they, they did some crazy wild angles back then. And I think that, well, I know that's what got me into professional wrestling, but that's what also made wrestling so interesting and unpredictable. Uh, you had authentic guys, tough guys, who who looked the part when they came out. They, they you knew they were they were some bad dudes. You knew they were they were tough. They had the cauliflower ears. They had the crooked noses. The, the closed eyes and 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 the the scars on their head, the scars on their bodies, and they they looked tough, and they looked the part, and uh, that was part of the Dory Funk Senior recipe. He he made sure that uh, the people in West Texas and Amarillo, especially where where he was based out of, uh, knew that the wrestlers were tough guys and knew they were the real deal. 
And I think back then, uh, if you lost a bar fight, you know, if you lost a fight anywhere, you were fired. You were gone. That was just a standard of pretty much uh, the majority of the territories. I know it was in, in Louisiana, but I'm pretty sure that Bill Watts or, or Dory Funk Sr. and guys like Eddie Graham adhered to that same uh, way of thinking. You were representing professional wrestling, and that was uh, your job to protect it. In West Texas, ooh, they had some of the best, man. If you look back into the history of professional wrestling, Dory Funk is one of those names you'll never forget. Harley Race, you never forget. I know we mentioned this once before on the show. It's like Gene Kaniski should be on that list of the guys you never forget because he had such a long title reign. For some reason, sometimes he gets forgotten. I have no clue why. It doesn't really make sense. It doesn't really head up. But for some reason, sometimes people love to kind of skip over and almost just like go from like Fez to, to Funk and, and almost skip over Kaniski. It's a, a weird thing with some uh, wrestling fans and, and the way they, they act and react. Well, well I, think, I think it holds true more so with uh, the modern wrestling fans because they don't really um, know the history or know how, how great Kaninsky really was or what a great mind he had for the business. And I, I, when I was in uh, Southwest, championship wrestling. I got to work with uh, a tag match uh, against Gene Kaninsky and Kelly Kaninsky in Corpus. I'll never forget it. (laughs) uh, He he was so light in the ring, but he had such a great mind. He was one of those guys where if he had his leg worked on in the match and and he would sell it, he had a rock. He He would carry a rock this is what the old-timers did. They carried gimmicks in their bags that, that you would think, what is this for? He put a little rock in his shoe so he could walk with a limp just just to, to make sure everybody saw that it was real. And that's the extent these guys went to back then. And Kaninsky um, maybe wasn't one of the flashier guys, but he was definitely one of the great workers. And he always did a deal where uh, he would go outside the ring to the floor to take his jacket off. And it was explained by Paul Bosch one time on television. This is this is what caught my ear and my eye. He he explained that Kaninsky had to go out to the uh, floor because he didn't want to take his jacket off and get attacked in the ring. Now, that's just a, a, a psychological um, storyline, but, but, it, but it made sense. And and those little details that nobody really cares about these days uh, is what made Kaninsky so special. And I don't think he he's really talked about or known too well these days because he, I don't think anybody really touts his name or or uh, puts it out there too much um, for whatever reason. But he was big in St. Louis. He was a he was a hell of a draw. At one time, and after three years of holding the title, I've, I've read, the, read the stories, heard the stories, that he started thinking, you know, this is this is for the birds. The champion is supposed to work three weeks on, one week off. And come to find out what you had the title, uh, the NWA had you booked even on your week off. So Jane was ready to give it up. And uh, I didn't know at that time, but learned later on Dory Funk Sr. had so much stroke in the NWA, he taught half the NWA how to wrestle and just had the political clout and uh, wanted to get Dory's name on the ballot to be the next champion. And in those days, it was it was voted on uh, who, who, the, who the champion was going to be. So, you know, we happen to be watching some of the greatest talent in the world come through West Texas and uh, stay a while, and and later on, you know, learn that they were the top names in the business. Didn't know how lucky we were at the time. Knew we, we got to see some great workers that uh, would come through Texas, West Texas, and East Texas. And I, I don't I don't know that uh, Memphis or, or places like that got Johnny Valentine or Wahoo McDaniel or thing guys who who. Uh, who really made their mark in the business. They got Terry Funk on occasion, and they got some other guys, but I remember just seeing some of the greatest uh, professional wrestlers and some of the greatest angles 
ever in West Texas and East Texas, by the way. So Southwest Championship Wrestling, Joe Blanchard, how did you kind of make your way into that territory? Well, that was uh, uh, when I was coming back uh, from Los Angeles, coming back home, Paul Bosch had hooked up with uh, Joe Blanchard. He broke away from the Dallas booking office at that time, and Joe was booking San Antonio. Uh, man, I, 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 I don't remember how I can. I think I called Paul, and he booked me back in, and uh, Buck Robley was booking at that time, I think. And I had known Buck when I first started out, so... However it was, I don't recall exactly how I got my foot back in the door, but that's that's kind of how it happened. And um, yeah, they had good towns. It was a nice nice territory to go to. And uh, Gino Hernandez, Tully, Chavo Guerrero, Tiger Conway Jr., and Manny Fernandez were all all guys that uh, I looked up to and and was around and uh, learned bits and pieces about and from. So. Um, that, I don't remember exactly how I got back, but I got back. And one of your first matches there, all the way back in 1981, you wrestled Dirty Dick Slater. Definitely has a reputation of being one of the toughest guys in the business. Did you get that from uh, Dick Slater? Well, uh, yeah, I, I certainly did. Um, but Dickie was always good, good with me. He didn't, uh... Uh, he, he got upset with me because I was rushing in the ring, but we all rush when we're starting out. And uh, he, he came back and told me I was like a, a nervous old whore and, and just relax, chill out up there. Damn, because I was rushing, man, and I I, uh, I threw up. <laughs> I threw up, not a whole lot, but I, but I actually threw up. And uh, Slater was a tough guy, no doubt. In fact, we had a... Two ring battle royal, uh, and or, or I'm sorry, it was a it was a tournament, a, a three day tournament, and all guys from all over the country were coming in. Vern Gagne had sent a guy named Evan Johnson down. You ever heard of Evan Johnson? I think if I remember correctly, you were telling me a story. This was like many many months ago. You told me some story where. Um, I yeah. think Evan Johnson thought he was a tough guy or <clears throat> yeah. thought he was yeah. like legit, but yeah, maybe, uh, well, he, maybe he was. wasn't so legit. Yeah, yeah, he was he was legit, like amateur Olympic okay. uh, uh, substitute or whatever, alternate, whatever you call them. And, and you know, Dickie was the booker at this time, and um, he booked himself with Evan Johnson, and Vern had come down, and oh, my gosh. Uh, it was, it was, Slater was trying to work with the guy, but he, the guy didn't understand his role. He he thought he was this Olympic great wrestler and, and, you know, this is professional wrestling. It's entertainment. It's a, it's a different thing. And this guy didn't get it. And Slater came back a little upset and, and Johnson came back a little upset and Dickie said, what was that out there? So you tried to eat me up out there. And Dickie said, well, I'm about to eat you up in here. And popped him and grabbed him, and they went back into the little uh, dressing area of the the hockey dressing room, and and uh, Dickie was gonna gonna hurt him, but we pulled him off. Remember, it was uh, myself and Chavo, and Manny was there, and we had pulled him back, and uh, yeah, Dickie was a was a pretty tough guy, man. He really was. Definitely has a reputation of being one of the toughest guys not to be messed with. Uh, that is for sure, you know, talking to many of the other wrestlers. Well, there's a story uh, about Slater in Atlanta. There's a, a, a nightclub called D Fords, and Wahoo uh, had gotten to a fight, I believe it was, or however, however it came about, and, and the guy pulled the gun. Wahoo took the gun away from the guy and, and slapped him with it or hit him with it. And the gun went off and hit Slater in the leg, you know, and he worked the next night. So, you know, the stories like that uh, were circulating more and more, you know, about Slater and Harley and Wahoo. And, and I don't know if Flair had any guns pulled on him, but but it was a different breed of cat back then. 
the other guys in this territory, there was great names you mentioned, but Kelly Kaniski sticks out because obviously Gene's son, who kind of didn't go on to big fame, but known as being a good worker, known for being the roommate of Telly Blanchard when they went to West Texas State together and was on the football team, great athlete, great wrestler. How come he didn't kind of make it further than you would think? Well, I tell you, I worked with Kelly a few times, and in Beaumont, Texas, Kelly gave me a forearm and split my chin wide open. I got eight stitches in my chin. Um, I think he just – I don't know if he had the, the passion or temperament. I mean, he was he was a great guy, uh, but going out in the ring, he was just – all over the place, and you have to um, you have to relax. And I don't know that he ever did or ever loved it, and was around guys during that. At that time, it was it was like uh, chaos, and, and it was a tornado going on in the business. I mean, there was a lot of things that were uh, happening, and and you had to be on your toes a lot, I guess. And and to stay away from uh, the late nights and, and early morning crowd, and I don't I don't think Kelly really clicked with it and loved it as much as uh, as a lot of other guys did. I mean, living on the road is, is isn't for everybody, and and being in in a different town every night or you know not making a whole lot of money in the beginning can get a little tiresome for for some people. So I understood that man. It's I just don't think he had he, he had the uh, the passion or desire to to do it. I mean, his, his dad had been on the road all those times, and uh, growing up, I, I think he might have uh, figured it might be a different way of life for him. Joe Blanchard, the promoter, known as being a great promoter, had TV before a lot of other places had TV. A lot of other people had TV. Uh, he had great deals and, I guess, great wherewithal to kind of get the name and his product out there. What did you think about Joe? I like Joe. Joe was a good man. He really was. And um, he was always nice to me. In fact, you know, Tully was always nice to me in the beginning. He really was. He's, he's never been anything but great to me. So uh, Joe was a good man, but, you know, Tully could rub people wrong, and I could see why, I could see how, but uh, I, I wasn't in a position to, uh, to to cause him any grief, and you know, therefore he was he was cool. Yeah, but Joe was was always a nice man. Joe, I think, was always looking for young talent uh, and be able to give them an opportunity, and and he did. So I'm I'm very grateful for Joe Blanchard. You know, what's interesting about Tully is you think about him and his career and where he went, what he did, obviously the Four Horsemen. I was looking through because he mentioned something to me a while ago about how he held the most wins ever at Dusty Rhodes. So I'm like, oh, it's got to be Flair. So I went and I looked, and I was like, wow, Telly really had the most wins over Dusty. It was crazy how many wins he had over him and, and like, to get the heat and stuff. But what was the relationship between, like, Dusty and, and Tully? And, you know what I mean? Because it seemed like they wouldn't get along or they wouldn't have this good relationship, but he kept getting wins over him. Well, I believe it was Joe Blanchard who really gave Dream his, his first break, and I don't think Dream ever forgot that. You know, uh, for all the the negative things anyone has ever said about Dusty Rose, the, the one thing I don't think people have stopped to think about was how loyal he was, and, and especially for the people in his early days. You know, he and Murdoch were friends from from way, way, way back in the early, early times. And, and Joe Blanchard uh, was a guy who gave Dream a lot of breaks and, and opportunities. And I think it just carried over with Tully. And, uh, you know, Tully was a great worker and, and could get legitimate heat. He just people knew when you looked at him and when he talked, you just got that sense that he was a cocky, arrogant, spoiled brat. And and he might have been, and, and no doubt, it, you have to be full of yourself. You have to believe in yourself if you're going to be that top guy. And Tully believed in himself. Tully was uh, everything he said he was. I mean, you know, he's talked about the horsemen was organic. They They liked hanging out with each other because they – they all did the same things, and they all wanted to be in the spotlight, and they all wanted to live that life. And, and um, not everybody's cut out for that life. I mean, you have to 
once again, talk about being the part. Those guys were the part. You had Arn, Tully, Flair, uh, JJ, and they all had specific and deliberate personalities that fed off each other. And uh, uh, there was a mystique about them. And even in the bars and in the clubs and places that people would see them, uh, they they never lost that aura and perception that they were somebody special. So I think Dream felt that too. You know, Dusty always believed in himself and always believed he was a star. And I think he appreciated other people who believed that too. So I think that was kind of uh, uh, the connection there. They were both stars. They both believed it. They both knew it and uh, wanted it. And, and that's a big thing. You mentioned Manny Fernandez. What's kind of your opinion on him? Because everyone, you know, you hear different things. Like, you know, sure. he's a little crazy or, you know, did he really you know, serve in Vietnam? All this other, right. like, crazy stuff you hear about him. What's kind of your, your story and your history with Manny? Uh, you know, Manny, was, Manny was, was certainly crazy, but I love Manny. I really do. He, he and Chavo and Tiger took me under their wing when I got there, and they, they really took care of me. And uh, for all his craziness, Manny is definitely passionate and com- and and he can be compassionate too uh, to someone and, and and help you out and uh he has certainly got some war stories and I've I've been there when he's been in those bar fights and I've been there when he's he's been completely crazy um but at the same time uh I I think he's one of those guys who who believes in what he does and makes no apologies for it. He he's got his way of doing things, and um, he's not going to let anybody tell him how to do. He's going to do it his way. I'm trying to find the words because uh, Manny's been good to me for as long as I've known him, but. Manny is also one of those guys who won't back down when sometimes he should back down. And I only say that because uh, it would, it, there, there's no point in arguing with somebody who, when you're outnumbered, how about that? And Manny would. He didn't care how many people or how, how many weapons you had or what you had. He was just that bull-headed, strong-willed guy. And uh, I've, I've heard all the rumors. I've, I've, I've heard people tell me stories, but I only know what I know from Manny, and I've seen him uh, through the years. I saw him two years ago at the uh, ECW arena for the convention, and he was Manny, and he's the Manny I've always known. So, But I love Manny. He's, 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 he was always great to me. So how long were you supposed to stay in Southwest? Because it seems like you're only there for uh, maybe – Maybe like I don't know six months or so, or it doesn't seem like it's that long of a period of time. Were you supposed to be there for longer, and was it actually longer? Well, I, I don't know. I, I remember Jim Barnett came in, and he asked uh, for me and Gino, and I think one other person to go to Atlanta, and that was uh, mm, that was that was the beginning of a strange, strange trip. And so I was there for not a, not a long time, but long enough. And uh, then Jim, I remember Jim coming through and met him uh, and got the, got told that this was when Buck was booking though. So Buck, Buck was booking, Buck Robley was booking at this time and uh, told me that Barnett wanted me in Atlanta and I was supposed to be there on a, on a Saturday for TV and I did. Why was it such a strange trip? It was a strange trip. It was a very well. It, it was there was a lot of things that happened along those uh, that way though that path in San Antonio to Atlanta, and uh, those are things, John, that I, I think I've talked about in the past. But but there are also things that I've I've long taken out in the desert and buried, and uh, to dig them up would probably get me in way too much trouble and way too much. Uh, Way too much energy to even expound on it, but, but suffice to say, uh, I, wherever I, whatever happened then led me to where I am today. So 
uh, it was I, I likened it to being at sea for over 40 years, and you weather the storms, the good days, the bad days, the waves, uh, you know, the mirages, <laughs> the illusions, and and almost drowning, uh, being thrown off the ship, swimming back, getting on, having those really cool calm days and all of a sudden the storm comes coming down and and man i don't know when we all swam out of it but you know 2020 and 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 the the year or the or the whole 2000s uh really saw a whole attitude change in the business and when i first went to atlanta you know, I met Tommy Rich, Brad. Oh, I know I met Tommy before, but but I met Brad Armstrong and the Armstrongs, and, uh, Buzz Sawyer. Uh, God, man, just just a whole cast of Paul Orndorff, whole cast of characters, and the Falcons' rest was. Oh, I, I I wish I could describe it in in adequate, colorful terms, but the Falcons' rest was just a a rundown two story apartment building furnished for the boys who were staying there because uh, we were on the road so much you weren't going to live there too you weren't going to be there very much so just a place to drop your stuff take a shower when you are around the Atlanta area and and do your thing but man at that time in the business um, it was it, it, it was it was crazy let me say that and I think the whole world was going crazy at that time it was the 80s uh, you had a bunch of young guys, and uh, n- with no limits and no rules, and everybody was uh, uh, going 100 miles an hour. So, you know, but but again, uh, some people came out great, and some people didn't. And mm, I wouldn't, I would change a few things, but for the most part, uh, it was a great time. It was a good time. Now, for everybody out there who wants to hear more about Georgia and that awesome uh, hotel, motel, apartment building you guys stayed at, we have an episode purely on Georgia Championship Wrestling, which is an awesome episode to go back and look at. You talk about Bud Sawyer a lot in that. You talk about Kevin Sullivan. You talk about Chuck Donovan, Eddie Mansfield, the whole cast of characters. So please, I implore you to check out the archives for our episode on Georgia Championship Wrestling. Now, wait, did you guys talk awesome. about did you guys talk about the Falcon dress? We did, yeah. Oh, my God. Ooh, oh my God! You know it's not there anymore. It's in Hapeville, Georgia. That's where it was, and uh, it was right down the street from the original Dwarf House, Chick Fil A. And I'll never forget this because I've looked for it ever since. But Brad Armstrong um, and Tommy Rogers, myself, maybe Scott Armstrong was there with us uh, as well. And Brad ordered a hot brown. Have you ever had a hot brown? No, what the hell is that? Right, exactly. I've looked it up, and I still can't tell you what it is, but I know I've had it at the Dwarf House, and um, I've never seen it anywhere else. I've asked, and nobody else knew what it was either, and I looked it up on the Internet, and it's it's I, uh, something to do with, with ham, and it's, it's covered in, in cheese and all this other stuff, man, but it's delicious, and I've never had it since. Um that was 1982, I believe, 1981 or 82. And, uh, you know, so Hapeville isn't the greatest part of Atlanta. I'll say that. It hmm. it, uh, it had some uh, uh, nefarious underlying shadows running around at times. But, um, again, you know, we weren't there a whole lot. I feel like a hot brown is something that when we were younger we'd put in a brown paper bag, burn it, ring somebody's doorbell, and run. I feel like well, that you be. know that that's what you guys in the east would do. That's who you <laughs> northeast. That's a, that's the difference between the south and the east here, man. Northeast, but yeah, no, no, it was it was. Uh, look it up. I'll I'll have to look it up in a little bit here, but but it was yeah, really really good stuff, man. Really good stuff. But uh, the the Falcons' rest was famous. Um. Just, just, or infamous. Let's say it was infamous. Mm. Yeah, because you never knew what you were going to get when you walked in. So when you look back at your career, though, and, and just go through, I mean, we've talked about Mid South, we've talked about Houston wrestling, but how come you never really wrestled for world class? Uh, the only thing I could find was one match. You and Thor were defeated by the Fantastics, but, but it was in '85. Also, when you were wrestling for Mid South, so how come you didn't wrestle for? 
world-class more. And, of course, I believe if anybody doesn't know, Thor, a.k.a. Nails, a.k.a. Kevin Kelly, um, one of the greatest uh, characters (laughs) of all time. Sure. <laughs> uh, well, I knew, yeah, I knew Kevin from Oregon. Well, um, I never, the Von Erichs, uh, I, I, I was a Paul Bosch guy, I guess is the best way to describe it. And when Paul took over from Morris Siegel in 1967, um, Morris had the booking office in Texas, on that, in East Texas, and, and they were uh, booking out of, out of Houston. And uh, when Paul took over, Fritz took the booking office. I don't know the particulars or circumstances, but you know, prior to this, even when Morris Siegel was promoter in Houston, uh, and they were having a war with Dallas, uh, the Sportatorium apparently burned down twice, and there were suspicions and rumblings and rumors, rumors and innuendo, to, to borrow a phrase, that that the Houston office might have had something to do with it. Never been proven, just always speculation. And um, that could have been a huge reason I never pursued going to Dallas. Uh, Once again, it was one of those things that... Dallas had its own vibe. You know, the Von Erichs, Gino. I teamed up with Chris Adams in California. Uh, Just the, the way things were done in always had been done. Uh, I never really pursued it, never really ambitiously went after going to Dallas. Um, I'd worked there a couple times early in my career against Skandor Akbar, and I think I worked with, gosh, I know I had a couple matches in the Sportatorium, and one was Skandor, and maybe the next one was uh, the Iron Sheik, maybe? I don't know. But, um, yeah, I just never, never hooked up there, never really had any ambition to go there. Uh, the Von Erichs had already... The Von Erichs and the Freebirds, I think, had already uh, uh, had their gimmick, and I, I didn't see a place for me there at all. Yeah, this is going back to 1979, early 1980, when it was NWA big time, before it was world-class. even wrestled Les Thornton, of course, you mentioned Skandar Akbar. That's what I could find, anyway. Ah, uh, maybe it was less. Maybe it was a sort. I wrestled less in Fort Worth, I think, and and he was he, he was upset with me on a couple times. Yeah, I wrestled him in Houston too. Fifteen minute draw, my 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 uh, debut match in Houston against Les Thornton, and oh my God, uh, he couldn't. He he was. I'll never forget this. He he calls in the ring. He says, "Can you call him?" I said, "What?" Can you call him? I said, oh, okay. And he shot me off, and, and I collided into him, and he got really pissed, gave me a stiff form, snapped, veered me over, grabbed a chin lock, and I thought, oh, geez, I just screwed up. Well, he got back to the dressing room. He says, can you cartwheel? Well, no, I can't cartwheel. Hell, you know, I'm nervous as hell. I'm, I'm, I don't know what the hell you're saying. He has an English accent. I couldn't hear back then either, obviously. So, uh, yeah, it was it was – Texas, Texas was a cool place uh, for for wrestling at the time. They were still doing blood and guts, and you still had guys who would come in, and uh, it was a stiff, solid. Let me say this: it was a solid territory where you had to work solid if you're going to be on top. That's for sure. And uh, the rest of the card was always fighting for for a position. And um, looking back on it, like everywhere, it was all. There was a lot of politics, and it was a lot. It's a relationship business, anyway. I, I knew that from the beginning, but it took me a while to figure it out how it works. And you have to; they have to like you. They want you to be there. And how do you make yourself likable? Well, are you coachable? Are you dependable? Do you do you have ideas? Do you have something valuable? We draw people. We we draw money. That's that's the bottom line. So, um, and real quick. If I could, uh, this may take us to where we need to be. But, you know, watching wrestling in El Paso is is one of the things that, uh, uh, you know, I I believed all the way up until the time I was 10 years old. But I kind of started thinking about it, you know, during the times uh, when I would watch it. But I remember one angle in particular. And come to find out they had done this all over the country, all over the U.S. You know, Grizzly Smith came in 
to El Paso or the Amarillo, West Texas Territory. And Grizz was like seven foot. Grizz was a big man, red hair, red beard, wore the jeans. And, and he used to come on TV and say, you know, you can't hurt my stomach. You can punch me. You, you can hit me. You can't hurt me. And he says, I don't even care if you get a 15-foot ladder. You, you can come off the, the ladder and, and you won't hurt me, whatever. And he did this a couple of weeks, and you have a guy come out and stomp him in the stomach or get on the top turnbuckle and come off on, on his stomach and and not hurt him. Grizz wouldn't sell it. And uh, one week, Harley Race came out and says, hey, I got my ladder. Where are you, you coward? And uh, they went to break. And sure enough, Grizzly, Grizzly came out and says, all right, I'm here. We'll get in the ring. He'll lay down, and uh, Harley gets his ladder out, has two guys holding it. And uh, this is in the studio. And Nick Roberts says, uh, ladies and gentlemen, we need complete silence. So uh, please refrain from yelling, screaming, and talking. Harley needs to have uh, complete silence to concentrate. So they set the ladder up. Harley goes all the way up on top into the, the ring lights, the studio lights, and it's 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 a great, great look. Um, and he, he steadies it, and everybody's waiting, and all of a sudden... Harley jumps off the ladder and comes with his knee across Grizz's neck. And Grizz has his tongue hanging out, and he's, he's uh, writhing and kicking, and, and the people go nuts, and, and Nick Roberts goes, Oh, my God, oh, no, we can't can't believe what happened. Harley comes over and says, oh, I can't believe those goofs. There's those goofs holding the ladder. They didn't hold it steady and laughing. And then Nick Roberts says, We need an ambulance, ladies and gentlemen. Not an ambulance, an ambulance. And uh, they got the ambulance, and they rolled that door up in the back of the studio and showed him, showed Grizz with his tongue hanging out, put him in a neck brace, and put him in the ambulance and took off. Well, this is in 69, and we're about to move to Houston. And uh, I want to know what's happened with Grizzly Smith. And a friend of my mom sends me the newspaper clippings every week in Houston. And every week in that newspaper clipping, they would say something about Grizzly Smith is still recovering. We don't know if he'll ever wrestle again, but he, he's still looking for revenge on Harley Race. And we're watching Houston wrestling now, and Wahoo McDaniel's there, Johnny Valentine is there, and, and Gary Hart, the spoiler, and all kind of new new wrestlers. And, and we're watching on TV. And um, Paul Bosch says, next week, ladies and gentlemen, Returning to action uh, will be Grizzly Smith to get revenge on Johnny Valentine for coming off the second rope with his atomic skull crusher with his elbow across Grizz's neck. And this was the same time that Harley had come off the ladder in El Paso on Grizzly Smith. And the next week I get a get a clipping from the lady that says Harley or Grizz is returning to El Paso to get revenge on Harley Race for coming off the ladder across his neck. So I asked Grizz about that years later when I was working in Louisiana. He said, yeah, I had a six-week tour of Japan, and we did the angle in both places. He's working both territories. And, uh, but, but I remember saying that, and that's what kind of made me go, hmm, maybe there's something more to this than I think there is. And, uh, but it fascinated me even more because I thought, how could they get away with that? But, of course, there was no Internet. The only way you would know is if people were sending you clippings and results from the next town. And, uh, I mean, that was that was the way they did things. They kept it uh, pretty close, close to the vest anyway. And they did angles like that. They did it in California with uh, Pepper Gomez, and they did it all over the uh, states with other guys, you know, Ivan Putsky and, and Mighty Igor and stuff like that. It was a, it was a ballyhoo and, and hoop love wrestling that uh, I don't think you can get away with today because people are either too sophisticated or too smart or they think they're too sophisticated or too smart uh, to let it happen to, and to enjoy it. So they, they did another angle with uh, the great Malenko, Dean's dad. He would wear these dentures. And uh, I'll never forget Wahoo McDaniel. Hit him in the mouth one time, and the dentures went flying. And the people went, oh, my gosh, you could hear the collective gasp because that wasn't supposed to happen. Wahoo stomped the dentures in the mat, and, Wahoo, and Malenko's going crazy, and people are cheering and going nuts. But Eddie Graham did that with Malenko in every town in Florida. So 
you know, you were able to do it back then because the information highway wasn't wasn't around, and not too many people uh, knew what was going on except what was happening in their town, their little bubble of the world. So, you know, things change, <laughs> and not always for the better, but uh, sometimes you just got to accept it. That is awesome, and I just wanted to randomly bring up because we kind of were talking about nails, a.k.a. Kevin Kelly. He was Thor at this point, your partner. just got to ask, do you know anything about his fight with Vince McMahon and that awesome backstage story where apparently nails, like, legit try to choke him out and was beating him up? Well, only what everybody else has read and heard. Um, yeah, I, I knew – I knew. name is Kevin uh, Kelly, actually. His real name is Kevin Kelly. And Wacoats, first, isn't it? Isn't it really Wacoats or something? Or is, is it Wacoats? Kevin Kelly? I think it is. I think Kevin Kelly might have been a gimmick. Uh, oh, okay. Well, I, yeah, I Kevin knew. Kevin Wachholz is his real name. Yeah. Okay, okay. I met him in Portland, and um, uh, once again, everybody was goofy back then. Everybody was insane, and he was. Um, he looked great. He was strong as hell in the gym, uh, but. You could tell, or I could. I thought I looked. I, I thought I could tell with Tracy too, but this guy had a little bit of a uh, sparkle in his eye that that had crazy written on it, and just sitting around talking to him, you felt that element of uh, something ain't right, and he could snap at any minute. But but again, that was that was kind of the the character of a lot of people back then, and come to find out, it wasn't uh, too far fetched. But I only know what everybody else has written, read, and I've never asked anybody else about it. I just uh, I don't think that's something they wanted to talk about. But but no, I don't know the inside or outside. I just know that I know that it did happen, and that's about it. So if you think about your time in Texas just in general, you spent a lot of time wrestling you know, for Houston wrestling, and we mentioned only a brief period of time, really, with World Class, a.k.a. Big Time, and a brief time with Southwest. Do you wish almost you wrestled more in Texas, or is it better to kind of get that exposure and, and you know head up north and go all, all, to, all around all the different places? One thing I wanted to do that that I was just too late for uh, was I always wished to, uh, I could have been able to work the Amarillo Territory. I know they were long trips. I know they were brutal trips. But everything I've heard from from Dream, from Terry Funk, um, uh, Manny, uh, no, but of course Manny tells stories anyway, uh, it was some of the greatest times, some of the greatest places, some of the greatest wrestling fans. I, I got to wrestle Dory Funk Jr. and Dick Murdoch. We were the Heavenly Bodies uh, for a special show we did in Amarillo. It flew us in from Smoky Mountain. I saw Ricky Romero there. Didn't get a chance to talk to him. But, but it was that atmosphere. It was that vibe. It was when we went over our finish, uh, Terry was running the show, Terry Funk, and he took us all down these, <laughs> this uh, myriad of stairs into another dressing room where nobody could see us, and we're all going over the, the, the finish, and uh, Murdoch is, is, is playing around and telling jokes, and Terry's saying, come on now, Dickie, let's get down to the finish here. Let's talk about this. What are we doing? And And... Just to be in that atmosphere where those guys took it seriously, the baby face came out one one side of the arena, the heel came out the other side, and uh, just to have that that spectacle, that that presentation of uh, wrestling, you know, you, I remember seeing pictures of the Amarillo ring and on the turnbuckles it said uh, uh, twenty five hundred dollar fine or something like that for coming off the top rope. And and just had these things that looked so uh, odd and different and, and strange and, and peculiar, but but somehow they all fit. 
and you knew it was somebody special when they came out to the ring and they were all wearing um not not costume but they were wearing gear that fit who they were and i i, I wish i could have wrestled during that time i wish i could have wrestled uh, or or even been around that that era uh and and to see how much fun those guys had you know there was a team called the Von Bronners, managed by Gentleman Saul Weingroff. And he was the guy who taught, who taught Dory. I think it was Carl Von Bronner who taught Dory how to do that uppercut. And uh, I think Mondo was telling me, Mondo Guerrero, that, that in the locker room, uh, the Von Bronner would, would be showing Dory how to do the forearms, the uppercuts, and, and would teach him. Uh, back in the back in the dressing room, and they they do it each night until Dory got it down. That became Dory's signature move. So you know those guys were always learning, and uh, they always took it serious, and they they approached the match um, like they were going into a wrestling match instead of just going in and, and playing wrestler. And and that's what made those guys so real and authentic. They they had these big cauliflower ears. They had these these bruises and bumps, and they they looked like they could kick somebody's ass. And uh, I, I just remember Texas being one of the the places when they when they would say they wanted to have a match with no rules, no disqualifications, be called a Texas death match. Texas death match. And uh, Dory Funk Sr. was the king of the Texas death matches. And I'll never forget when he came to Houston the first first time we were there. And it was against Jose Lothario in a Texas death match. And Paul Bosch said, uh, uh, you know, Funk has had over a thousand Texas death matches and never lost one. And he's coming undefeated to face Jose Lothario. And wouldn't you know it, that was the night he lost. <laughs> yeah. You know, so I mean, but you could ballyhoo that stuff. And you could you could put it out there like that. And it was all bullshit. But, but it wasn't because the guy didn't approach it as bullshit. They approached it as... They're going out, having a contest, and yes, it was entertainment. Yes, it was showbiz, and some of that stuff back then was horrible. I will say that, yes. But some of that stuff back then was great because these guys approached it uh, in, a, in a different way, and these guys meant it when they came to the ring, um, and and they, they were out there to prove to everybody that, that, they, that they meant it and that they were real in what they were doing. And that was the, the fantasy of it all. That was the magic of it all. Uh, if you could go out there and make people believe, man, you've done your job. Even the non-believers sometimes would go, oh, my God, that was real. That wasn't supposed to happen. That was what you went after, and that's what those guys went after. And, man, I, I don't know if that could ever be brought back because just because of the, the age we live in and, and too many people know too much, I guess. But I'm glad to answer your question. I guess I'm, I'm glad I got to wrestle in Texas. I'm glad I got to also travel. I always wanted to travel, and I think a huge appeal, one of the biggest uh, uh, things that appealed to me about wrestling was, was being on the road. Nothing uh, attracted me more than just going from town to town, a different town every night, um, different building, different place, different different people, and getting to know uh, people like Dr. Jerry Graham or Victor Rivera or Dory Funk Jr. and Terry Funk. You know, later on in, in, in my career when I got to actually know Dory and do seminars and camps with him, that was, that was so cool uh, because this is the guy I grew up watching. And then to get to know him and Terry and to get to know some of the other people I watched and, and really enjoyed – uh, was great. So that was that was the appeal. I didn't want to be uh, or live a normal life. I didn't want to do that nine to five. I never wanted to to have a job. And thank God I didn't have to. And in Texas, I mean, Texas is a different place altogether. I mean, it really is. It's it's got its own attitude. It's got its own place. And I think they're going to make it a country pretty soon. I'm pretty sure they're just going to break off from the U.S. He says what I hear. Oh, who is just curious? All-time favorite wrestler. 
I've, I've got to say, uh, in the beginning, it was all the funks. It was Terry. It was Dory. It was it was Dory Funk Senior. But you know, my my favorite wrestlers over the years, um, growing up, would have to be the Funks, the Johnny Valentines, the Wahoo McDaniel's. Um, my favorite wrestler of the modern era, I, you know, Ric Flair. I, I I have a lot of respect for what he's done in the ring, for what he's done in the business, and for, for his love of the business and his, his never-ending uh, passion and, and still wanting to get in there and still wanting to be a part of it. Uh, of course, The Undertaker is another guy who, no matter what, um, I got I, every time I would watch his entrance, I remember in Madison Square Garden when he wrestled Kane, uh, I went out into the garden. I went out to watch the Undertaker's entrance because it never got old. It was one of those things like a concert that that you just you, if you didn't get goosebumps, then you were in the wrong place. That's just the way I felt. And even as a performer, I I, I would just watch the Undertaker walk out, take his time, let it absorb and there was nothing like it. Uh, and he's got to be one of my favorites as well. So I, I, I just I I have a lot of I guess I have a lot of favorites, man. But um, uh, I guess the ones that, that first affect you as a kid are the ones that stay with you forever. At least it did with me. But uh, Taker and uh, Flair of the modern era, I'd have to say, two of my favorites. Thanks. I always feel like you're right. It's like the guys when you're growing up. For me, Hogan is like untouchable. I'm sure some other people, like, oh, Hogan, you know, screw him. But to me, he's always an untouchable guy. He's growing up, and even player too, to a certain extent. You grow up with these guys. You, you love these guys. Well, you got to, yeah. Hogan, Hogan was that guy though that um, I remember. When I met Hogan uh, in, in Los Angeles when he was coming back from uh, Japan. I met him. Uh, I'll never forget this. We were, the Olympic Auditorium had these, you know, he went down some stairs and then the real narrow hallways and both ends of, of, of the, uh, there were two hallways and, and both ends had dressing rooms. And I'm, I would walk in and go to the left and, and Hogan was walking out of one and uh, a couple other people walking out of one too and introduced myself and and he, he he was a genuine he was a genuine guy he was one of the boys and uh, every time I've met him since he's he's been one of the boys, but he the reason I think that is is because he came up uh, through the territory system he came up when you were making forty bucks sixty bucks you know sometimes you had to sleep in your car and didn't have enough to eat and had to eat tuna fish for you know four months or whatever it was he 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 came through the hard times and and another one. Speaking of, of favorites and, and guys who came up, and one of the boys was Stone Cold, Steve Austin. He became one of my favorites, too, because I know what he went through and lived at the same place, you know, the Congress Inn in Nashville. But Hogan um, never lost sight, uh, for the boys anyway, I think, as, as rich and famous and well-known as he got, you, he had to do what he had to do. And you got to commend him for that because uh, – Somebody had to do it, and he was in the right place at the right time. He had the look, and without Hogan, there's no doubt WWE would be in a different spot right now. And they would have certainly been in a different spot in the 80s. But, uh, yeah, I can see why Hogan would be a lot of favorites because he had that he had that it, and he still has that it. No matter where he goes, it's Hulk Hogan. No doubt. I think that is a, a great stopping point. For this week, want to mention, of course, your book, A Pro Wrestling Curriculum, Advice, Suggestions, and Stories to Help the Aspiring Pro Get to the Next Level. It is a complete one-year training curriculum and guide for beginners. And you can get my book at Amazon.com. Just type in Dr. Tom's book in the subject area, and it'll pop up. Or as Pro Wrestling Tees, you can go to ProWrestlingTees.com. You can go to Dr. Tom, his page, and get a shirt. I love the one at Dead or Alive. Or you can go to JPWA and get a JPWA shirt on ProWrestlingTees.com. You can also go to Patreon, 
where a Patreon has been set up. You can become a patron and support the JPWA on there. You can go to the JPWA website, jpwrestlingacademy.com. Dr. Tom, what is going on with this new semester of classes coming up? We are looking for our new semester in 2021. We have January 4th through March 26th. All the information is on jpwrestlingacademy.com. And uh, if you want to send us an email, our email is jpwrestlingacademy at gmail.com. And uh, we'd be more than happy to get back to you. But we're looking for a heck of a class coming up in uh, January, man. So, uh Sign up soon because we are getting a lot of applications. Looking forward to it. Also, you can follow us on Twitter at Two Man Power Trip, and you can of course follow Dr. Tom at Dr. Tom Pritchard. Dr. Tom, I know you got a lot of stuff coming up as far as some personal appearances and, and things of that nature. You got a, a lot of stuff coming up. Well, we do uh, actually in January, the first first weekend of January. It's going to be with uh, Altoona. Imagine Wrestling, Mike Letary and uh, the guys over there. It's it's uh, going to be on a Sunday, um, January the 10th, in uh, Altoona, Pennsylvania. And I'm sure Imagine Wrestling would love to have you if you get in touch with those guys. And, of course, the 16th and 17th, Nitro, West Virginia, for Power Slam Academy. And uh, that's a two-day seminar. So looking forward to it. Nice. Good stuff, as always. Dr. Tom, I'd like to thank everybody for joining us this week and every week right here on Take It to School with Dr. Tom Pritchard. We'll see you next week, folks. Thanks for listening to the two-man power trip of wrestling, What the World is Downloading.